Welcome to the Aquas Podcast. Conversations about regs, funds, and governance with your host, Daniel Lawler. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to the Equest podcast. It's heatwave time in Ireland in that it's more than 20 degrees. And certainly the good weather is helping us to survive COVID lockdown and in particular the stresses and strains of homeschooling three kids that don't really want to be homeschooled. For this episode, we wanted to take a little look beyond the Irish island and uh, look at how Europe more broadly was facing and seeing itself through COVID-19 in terms of the asset management industry. Who better to do that than uh, have Federico Capelli, who is a senior regulatory policy advisor at IFAMA, the European Fund and Asset Management Association, join us to explain what he sees from his kind of unique perspective, having members all across the European Union feed in with information and data and analysis of market developments and also being the European Association they're very centrally involved in the European regulatory agenda uh, from the industry perspective in terms of preparing responses to consultations so he's right at the heart of both market and regulatory developments and a great guy to have to explain to us how all of that is playing out in our COVID-19 world. As always I'm joined with my co-host Shannon Eastman Check her out at shannoneastman.com to see all of the strings to her bow. Delighted to have Shannon along, of course. So settle back, relax, enjoy, and find out what's going on at European level during the COVID-19 crisis. Federico and Shannon, welcome to the Equest podcast. Great to have you guys here. Good afternoon, Daniel. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. And, uh, and thank you uh, to Shannon for uh, helping us put this together. And um, I'm happy to be back again. I'm looking forward to this conversation. I think uh, there's some really interesting points that Federico raised, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how this plans out. You're getting to be an old dab hand at the podcast co-hosting, Shannon. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it, Danny. I'm working on it. And you've got your ETF lingo down. Exchange-traded funds. I'm looking, yeah, that's part of today's conversation. I'm ready. And what about lockdown life? You loving it? I'm now referring to it as rollout. I'm done with lockdown. This is all about rolling out now. So yes, Danny, I'm thoroughly enjoying the creativity. I'm thoroughly enjoying all the different perspectives that we're getting. I appreciate that um, we're in Ireland, so we get it. It's a little bit easier for us here than in other countries. What's it like over in Brussels, Federico? It's uh, sunny, which is probably the only thing that matters. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, better than it was a few uh, weeks ago, um, but uh, I think that we're slowly beginning to emerge from this. And I'm happily also back in the office, uh, where I tend to be more productive as I don't have a four-year-old son uh, interrupting um. all the time. Uh, I know what that's like. I think for me, it. I don't think COVID's going to kill me, but I think homeschooling might kill me. Or somebody's going to, if it's not me, it's one of the kids. Because I find I spend most of my time kind of, I have three of them, herding them to sit down and do what it is that they're supposed to be. And as soon as you take your eyes off one of them, they're gone. And you've got to go, and you just spend the, spend the whole time chasing around. So let them back to school. Are they going back this year, Danny? 
Well, they're talking about going back in September, but now they're talking about blended return, which means some of the time in the school and some of the time homeschooling. And I, I heard mm. that this morning. So my mood has mm. been grim <laughs> as a result. <laughs> Are the kids back in school over in Brussels, Federico? No, not yet. Not Is yet. that happening this year or September or what? It probably will. Uh, they'll uh, reassess in the course of the summer and... Uh, if all goes uh, as things are, they'll be allowed back uh, back in in September. Wow. Now, Federico, we've known each other for quite a while since you were in the, uh, the French regulator and I was in the Irish regulator. And now that we're both out, uh, and notwithstanding our confidentiality obligations, uh, I've always wondered how the AMF got such good people because I was always very impressed. I dealt with them a lot at uh, ESMA and IOSCO, always very well briefed, very, very good English, really on top of their briefs and on top of their game. How did the AMF do it? <laughs> Connections uh, would be the short answer. Um, I happened to be working with one of their detached national experts while at the commission. So I, I guess uh, she liked the way I worked. And as soon as she returned to Paris, uh, after her... Uh, stint with the commission was over she gave me a ring and said uh, i have a vacancy would you be interested certainly did the interview and i think it only took uh, them three weeks to go through all the interviews and the um, and propose a contract so um, i was very quick uh, i was also very surprised because uh, as as everyone knows french institutions uh, still tend to be very french i was a bit uh, the uh, <laughs> the uh, the visitor or the uh, a bit of an outlier, uh, but it was a, an extremely valuable experience uh, in in one of Europe's um, I think uh, best regulators. They they certainly uh, punch uh, way above their weight. They do, uh, and they have a wonderful habit of getting their own way. Yeah. How, how do they yes. do that, Federico? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite figured that one out yet, but they're a very close-knit community. Um, you know, them, industry, and, uh, and the other financial institutions that are, you know, French-based. Uh, so um, they're very well organized, I have to say. Uh, less so uh, the authorities in my country. <laughs> well, well, certainly very impressive in, in France. And of course, now you're, you're kind of the other side of the fence now, Federico. You're with a farmer. Yes. You're you kind of in a policy role there as well? Yes. Yes, not too different uh, from what I was doing at the AMF, uh, but I've, uh, as you said, uh, changed sides. So um, the good thing is that I occasionally still have a chance to uh, lobby my former colleagues. Um, and, you know, the fact that I've been with, uh, with a national uh, supervisor lends, lends me a bit more credibility, I think. Um, you know, also in... In, in, in how I read the, the regulatory landscape um, and uh, things to come, apart, of course, from the, uh, all the contact base that I have uh, you know, kept and uh, occasionally really rely on. And how do you approach then uh, lobbying, Federico, and being the other side of the fence? Because I remember well, um, as a regulator, um, obviously, whenever you engage with somebody from industry, it is on your mind that your your counterpart has a vested interest in some shape or form. So you always know you're being lobbied. 
And sometimes the engagement is fruitful and the other side will tell you things you didn't know, give you intelligence, give you very good impact assessment, but fair and, and, and not, um, you know, not completely biased. And other times it can feel like your, your counterpart is telling you all the things that's wrong in the world with no offer of solutions and it's, it, it feels a bit like a whinge. So how, how do you kind of get that balance right now that you're, you're kind of on the lobbying side? Um, well, I, I like to mention that I was a former regulator. So I think that this already does away with at least some of the, of the skepticism. Um, that uh, some regulators still share um, when they look at industry representatives. Um, I think that as we move further away from the global financial crisis of 08, um, the, uh, the level of the conversation has become a bit more sincere, uh, but it very much also depends on you know, who you're talking to. The, the regulatory community is broad. Um, and I tend to do better with those um, with those um, regulators that are really interested in facts-based evidence and really want to know what the industry perspective is. There are other corners of the regulatory community that unfortunately have a political agenda. <clears throat> and so you can be as exhaustive and as detailed as you like, but if uh, you are not in line, let's say, with the uh, political objectives of that institution, then um, you being there, uh, talking to them, and engage and engaging actively won't uh, won't bring too much. No, it can certainly be a very political process, but but it, but the engagement between industry and and the regulator can be a very valuable process from the regulator's side because, you know, there to an extent as a regulator, certainly as a policy side, you, you are working a little bit in a vacuum when you, when you decide or you're, you're coming up with new regulatory proposals and how you calibrate them and how you decide how far to go with the rules depend, depends a lot on impact. And, and sometimes you don't have great information impact. You really do depend on, on industry to give you that flavor for, well, if we draw the line here, this is the cost. But if we were to do it here, we achieve nearly all we wanted to achieve, but the cost is a lot less. So it can be a very valuable engagement from a regulator's perspective if it's done well. How did, but in the current COVID-19 world where you're kind of, you're working from home, I know you're, you're back to the office now, but that kind of, I guess before you would have done a lot of personal engagement to help you to meet your counterparts and, and, and regulators and, and exert influence in, and, and convey information. Is that tougher now that you're, you're probably doing that all virtually? Definitely is. It's definitely become more difficult and um, we, um, at least from my experience, uh, we have basically had, um, since the start of the COVID, uh, our regular meetings and exchanges uh, reduced uh, by, by two thirds, I would say roughly. Wow. Uh, most of it is now done uh, by a call, not even by a conference call, but really by call. Uh, and only uh, if and when necessary. And how do you find that then in, in a fama engaging with your members? Is it, is it similarly a very different world there? It's very different, yes. I mean, we're still obliged to use um, uh, the telephone and the video conference mean, uh, but uh, 
there the uh, exchange uh, is as regular, if not more regular than before, uh, given that there's already a lot of work, uh, even more than before. So this obviously justifies a continuous exchange and discussion with, uh, with the members. The topic of the new normal is something we've come across a lot in the last few episodes of the podcast, whether it's, uh, you know, ways of working and on and, and the HR side of thing. From your perspective, do you think this is kind of the new normal for you and, and for industry associations that it's more engagement at a distant and virtual engagement and it's going to be that bit harder to get that, even that, that, um, that direct engagement with your, your end stakeholders, your, your, your regulators and what have you? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, um, it's, uh, it's not optimal, but I wouldn't say it's the new normal. I would say it's, uh, more a matter of, uh, short term at worst, uh, medium term, but I am rather confident that we'll be going back to engage as, uh, as usual. It may be early next year, but, uh, I really do hope that we will be able to get back. Uh, to have that uh, that qualitative uh, engagement that we that that we had in the past, because uh, as you were saying before, body language also matters, and so that is already a good chunk of the communication that goes on in a room. The fact that yeah. you're not uh, there to see that person makes things uh, makes things rather different. Has there been an opportunity during this COVID nineteen? Uh, experience to reevaluate your priorities and reevaluate what's important and what needs to be shelved. Um, how has Absolutely. that changed from the priorities going into COVID to the priorities that you are working with right now? Uh, Aside from business continuity, uh, yeah. I think business continuity is across the table. But yeah. have you? I, I'm, I'm kind of looking at the fifty foot view. You know, taking a step back and going, here's all the stuff we were focused on for the last 12 months. Mm -hmm. Is it really important? Has that happened? Have you guys had a chance to review? Absolutely. Really matter? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's been uh, fundamental to our own uh, well-being and, <laughs> uh, yeah, and survival. Um, yeah. we, uh, we, each one of us here at Efama has... Um, a number of priorities uh, that he or she uh, needs to carry out and implement within uh, roughly three or four different standing committees and task forces. Some of those priorities have been uh, shelved for the time being uh, if uh, work is not tied to uh, an impending consultation uh, or anything uh, urgent of that kind or um, related to giving uh, the regulatory community the information it seeks uh, in this precise moment, uh, then the rest has really taken a, a, a back seat. So to give you an example, a lot of work has had to go into communication, communication with our uh, members first and foremost, where we've consulted them to try and gather intelligence, both at a company level and uh, also uh, to know what is happening domestically in their own interactions with the with their supervisors. Um, we have had to uh, also, uh, based on this information, prepare um, a whole suite of uh, communications and letters to the uh, EU policymakers, 
to inform them on market developments, um, especially in terms of what was happening in uh, funds, in terms of investor flows. It was also important to reach out and obtain postponement of reporting and compliance deadlines uh, as required by the legislation in force, as well as of public consultation deadlines. Um, we also did uh, um, articulate, especially to ESMA, that uh, it uh, should uh, exercise leniency and greater forbearance in those instances where firms um, were not able to meet their regulatory requirements. Uh, in this regard, we sent uh, a letter to ESMA uh, in late March. Uh, and then uh, we have also been engaging with, uh, with other actors like uh, the ECB, for instance, uh, where we made a number of recommendations related to its, uh, its uh, pandemic emergency purchase program uh, more recently in relation to money markets. Wow. It sounds like there's a lot of regulatory implications that had to be, one, annotated, articulated, and then two, actioned. Exactly, like exactly. More than just two or three. What, what were the regulatory implications that you guys um, threw up on the whiteboard and then said, right, this is how we're going to action it? Uh, so there were a number of um, uh, deadlines, for instance, concerning reporting requirements for uh, NMFs to report on their stress tests. There was... Um, a postponement that was needed in terms of giving us more time to answer a very complicated consultation, the one tied to uh, MIFID 2 MIFIR. Mm -hmm. um, we've been successful in this, so this was uh, positive. Um, and um, moreover, it was also uh, a lot of work going into uh, communicating with the broader public um, by revamping our website, um, dedicating a section of it uh, to COVID-19 related developments, um, summarizing all of our key actions and uh, really offering continuous updates on what we were producing day by day. So copies of all of our letters and communications with the policymakers, uh, as well as with under industry bodies. And also our figures, which is uh, something that EFAMA does. So uh, we, of course, look at policy. We make recommendations based on what our members believe is right for our industry. But we are also, uh, we have a, a research team here uh, that uh, gathers information across all of our member jurisdictions and, and puts out industry figures as well. So it's, it's really, it's, it's these two things, presenting them in a public manner on our website and communicating them to the broader public has also taken quite, um, quite um, a bit of our time. I'm really interested in the, the market developments uh, that you saw as a result of COVID-19. But before we mm -hmm. go there, on the regulatory side, the regulatory agenda was pretty jam-packed before, before COVID kind of kicked in. And it felt like we were going through that part of the regulatory cycle that was far enough away from the previous financial crisis that it was kind of assessing how well the legislation introduced on the back of that crisis was working, how well were, were the various pieces of legislation sitting together. Uh, and as you said, Federico, that's a little bit taken, uh, being pushed back a little bit because of the COVID-19 crisis. Do you think that's going to, that pace of that is going to pick back up and we're going to get back on track uh, and that that's going to still be the kind of the focus 
this um, smoothing out of any wrinkles between the, the piece of legislation? Yes, yes. I mean, that is uh, ongoing work, and I don't think that uh, the COVID uh, has changed that in any way. Um, my guess is that COVID has actually added uh, to the existing initiatives, either for these to be tweaked, uh, changed, amended, um, or uh, there is simply more work uh, on top of the uh, pre-existing uh, files. So um, we, uh, we are really struggling, uh, which is why <laughs> working remotely has been, uh, has been very difficult. Um, so we're a team of 15 here. Um, each of us has had to deal with a number of files. Um, and also another challenging aspect has been you know, getting members feedback. Uh, they are working from home as well. Um, some businesses have been uh, disrupted. And so it was often difficult to get um, high quality inputs to then feed into our, uh, in, into our work. Uh, as we as we as we uh, as we slowly come out of this, um, I think that in those instances where we've been offered more time, uh, we'll definitely, you know, try to rectify the uh, to to let's say not rectify, but to, to at least um, complement with uh, with more insights. Um, and um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I guess if you think back, Federico, to our, our lives as regulators, um, you know, I, I went in sort of post-crisis or, or actually we weren't quite the other side of the crisis, but a lot of the legislation that came out at that time was designed to either prevent the next crisis or make firms and the markets generally more resilient if, when that, if or when that crisis uh, arrived. And I guess that's where we are now. It's kind of the testing ground for the the reforms introduced around 2010, 2011, 2013. Um, and, and so when you look at the market developments, do you think that um, the reforms have had an impact and had the desired impact? They've made firms and, and markets more resilient than they might have otherwise been, that yeah. the impacts have been kind of manageable, albeit that they've been there, of course. So from what we're seeing, <clears throat> they certainly have. And um, I think that um, the asset management industry has passed this test uh, extremely well. Um, a lot was put in place, as you said, uh, post uh, global financial crisis. Um, and uh, I think it's being tested through a crisis that is even more severe. So um, I think that overall, if we look at uh, the fund management space, um, we're, uh, we're passing this test. And this is really also enabling us to get better figures um, around what is happening to really demonstrate how effective and good some of these reforms have been. Um, take money market funds, for instance. Um, we've seen um, you know, severe market stresses uh, in March. This prompted us to um, reach out to the ECB, uh, suggesting some minor changes to its uh, PEP program. Um, and uh, despite the fact that we have not yet obtained these, uh, markets have continued to work well, although still stressed. We've been seeing inflows in MMFs, for instance. So nothing like the kind of experience that we saw in late 08 and, and, and early 09. Uh, we actually did see that uh, in April, money market fund inflows 
picked up considerably, uh, flowing uh, back in. So you have investors really across the board, uh, be they uh, public bodies, corporates, or even uh, uh, high net worth uh, individuals, we're seeing something that is really completely different from, from, from what we saw. Yeah, uh, I, I guess if you, if you believe in markets and you believe in money talks, then seeing inflows into money market funds is validation that the market believes that the structure and the infrastructure and the tools that they have are sufficient to, to get them through this uh, and that it's a safe place to, to invest your money. Indeed. And you can also think about the, um, the liquidity management tools um, that, that we have in place, uh, especially uh, for those funds that are structured as, as usage in Europe. I think this crisis shows that, A, how resilient the, the usage regulation is and everything around it, because it's not only usage, but you know, on the side you have, you have uh, MIFID, uh, you have EMIR, uh, you have uh, SFTR, um, not to mention, of course, all the ESMA Level 3 guidelines, um, Q&As and the like. So I think that mm, over the course of the decade, the, 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 the amount of regulation that has been put around our activities has, in the end, really helped us. And it's quite surprising to still nowadays, uh, despite the fact that we've passed this crisis with, with flying color here from some in the regulatory community, that uh, you know more needs to be done and... Uh, Again, they're referring here to us as shadow banks, which is you know something that we thought we had left behind uh, um, for good uh, after a decade of uh, of implementing these measures and really proving uh, how uh, how we are not systemic, as as some uh, believe in the in the central banking community. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Federico, because when you said you know the asset managers and the asset management industry had proved itself. I just wondered whether uh, that was the view that you, the sense that you had, that that was the view that, uh, that regulators shared as well. But, you know, you, regulators and, and industry had kind of moved away from that term shadow banking in relation to, say, asset management and they talk about non-bank financial intermediation, which is, I think, a more accurate description. But the fact that it's re-emerging, I guess, uh, shows that there are still regulators who who have concerns uh, and who probably want to go again at whether funds are systemically important and what kind of controls need to be put in place. Is that, uh, is that back on the agenda now? Yes, unfortunately it is. Um, it is important to distinguish the different sides of the regulatory community. I would say there are two uh, big camps. On the one hand, you have uh, the uh, national market supervisors like the Central Bank of Ireland, the AMF, etc., those are people that monitor the markets on a daily basis and, you know, they understand what non-bank activities are, uh, including fund management, uh, among others. Then you still have parts of the central banking community, um, you know, the people that are usually gather at uh, the FSB level. But now increasingly in Europe, it's the uh, European Central Bank and the European Systemic Risk Board that are rehashing a lot of the... Um, hypothetical concerns that were once proper of the FSB 10 years ago. Uh, you may remember the work around uh, this. I do uh, remember. <laughs> Will I ever forget? How can you? <laughs> around this uh, methodology to designate uh, GC fees. 
global systemically important financial institutions. And so asset managers were supposed to be designated uh, just as well as banks and insurers, but on the basis of a methodology that was designed for banks. Uh, in Europe, we're seeing the ESRB, the European Systemic Risk Board, uh, especially come late to the party and say there are systemic risks or potentially systemic risks in funds. Not only that, but they have a power to issue recommendations that are now going straight to the European Commission uh, and that the European Commission will have to look at um, as it goes about um, reviewing the AFMD, for instance. It has also issued a number of recommendations directed directly uh, at ESMA, <clears throat> encouraging ESMA to uh, uh, do an in-depth study on financial stability implications uh, of funds exposed to corporate debt and real estate assets, um, as well as um, telling ESMA to consider guidelines to come up with a consistent methodology to measure leverage in alternative investment funds uh, to the extent that leverage is believed to contribute to systemic risks um, and then there's also a lot that the SRB would like to do in terms of implementing and operationalizing some of those um, recommendations or actually provisions that you have under Article 25 of the AFMD. So these are those, uh, let's say, macroprudential tools that would uh, allow um, the uh, supervisors to impose leverage limits on any, on any one fund or to directly suspend them in the name of public interest. Um, and these, in our view, are, are a bit extreme, but it simply tells you that there is an institution there that has not understood uh, how we essentially operate, what the difference is uh, between uh, an open-ended fund um, and a bank, and uh, has a very strong political agenda uh, that is now being uh, encouraged by the fact that we're going through what we're going through. But the flip side of that is that this, this, this crisis has really offered us a, a renewed, uh, renewed um, uh, firepower to, to, uh, to, to argue back uh, on the basis of evidence and, uh, and not on uh, a series of, uh, of hypothetical assumptions that, uh, if, you, if you read their papers, are really out of a game theory book. And Federico, where you've seen uh, asset managers and funds hit issues and stresses during this uh, crisis. What kind of areas have they been in, and, and do they do they support concerns that central banks have, or about siffiness of funds, mm. or do they kind of prove that actually the reforms in place already around things like liquidity management have done what they were supposed to do? Yes, certainly. So they prove that uh, the regulation in place has done what it was supposed to do. Um, but um, secondly, it, uh, it simply casts uh, a very important light on investor behavior. So regardless of um, the legislation in force, we are seeing, uh, looking at inflows and outflows, that uh, there have been no instances of... Uh, um, one-way markets, uh, fire sales, uh, liquidity spirals. Uh, these are the terms that you usually find in a lot of the central bank's analysis where, um, you know, they, 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 they draw these uh, 
end of the world scenarios where everything goes down and then uh, basically it's uh, it's up to the public purse uh, to bail everyone out. Uh, looking at flows across uh, fixed income, equity, money market funds, we, we clearly see that the outflows, for instance, experienced in March, were only a tiny fraction, and here I'm talking about 3 to 4% of total assets invested in those structures in Europe. So it is really a, a tiny part, a drop in the ocean, almost, uh, if we look at what flowed out of funds and then what came back in in March, because following the um, monetary uh, easing and further stimulus packages, we saw uh, a significant rebound. And so, whereas in March you had net outflows, uh, April saw net inflows. Uh, if the ECB's theories were right, uh, we, 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 we would have had a, a catastrophic um, loss of a value even across the following months. Uh, no investor would have dipped their toes into any fund, even, even uh, if uh, you know, securities, funds, uh, stocks, uh, bonds presented uh, valuable uh, buy, uh, buying opportunities. So I think that they, they, they do not fundamentally understand the market and um, they, they, there is really some, some education that needs to be done in these, as I said, corners of the regulatory community. Well, that could be the, I don't know where, if, if blessing is the right word, but that could be a positive from this experience that the markets have uh, put the products through pretty severe stresses and testing. And uh, products that come through that well can then demonstrate in a real life scenario that they've done what they were supposed to do. And we're big fans of ETFs on this uh, podcast. Isn't that right, Shannon? Yes, yes, we're not as much as Federico, though. Well, we had Ryan Sullivan from BBH on a couple of episodes ago, and we had a really good chat with him about ETFs, and particularly, I guess, how they performed in the States. From a European perspective, Federico, um, how have ETFs performed? Have market makers continued to make markets and prices continued to be made and, and what have you? Anything that has arisen as, during the crisis that's kind of surprised you, or... Are you pleased looking at the product with how, how the, the structure of it has held up? No, I'm very pleased. And I think that ETFs have really performed as they were intended to, uh, as they've been uh, structured uh, to perform. And I think especially uh, ETFs uh, are uh, the most salient case to really show how, how resilient these products have been. Again, the ECB and the ESRB are concerned about ETFs as well. You know, they see substantial growth uh, coming uh, from um, these products um, and uh, have uh, last year come out again with a number of papers saying, well, these may be systemic as well. Um, really not understanding uh, what the mechanics uh, of the ETF are in terms of difference between primary and secondary market and the additional layer of the liquidity that the secondary market gives you, especially around times like these where you have sudden market corrections. So overall, I would say that ETFs have really proven, A, to be resilient. By the way, they are also in Europe uh, tightly bound to the usage wrapper because that is how they are structured. And secondly, they have also acted as a price signaling mechanism showing uh, the broader market where the underlying 
uh, prices uh, are trading, uh, even when uh, the components of their underlying baskets uh, could not be as easily traded because of liquidity concerns. Those discounts that you have seen, uh, so those were expected. That is what happens uh, when markets reprice. However, they were only temporary. And this again goes to show that uh, these temporary dislocations really do not, do not bring about those long-standing um, um, long um, economic um, damages that, that, that some are, are, are fretting about. It's, yeah, that's something we, we chatted with Ryan about, and, and he kind of explained in the American experience uh, where, the, where the exchange and the primary market prices tended to diverge. What, what you tended to see was that actually it was the, the primary market price that tended to catch up to the secondary market price, mm -hmm. that, that the secondary market actually, if you like, priced things properly, and that it, it just took a little while for, because if you were dealing with underlyings that were bonds or whatever, and yep. there wasn't tons of liquidity in the market, it took a little while maybe for mm -hmm. them to catch up, but actually mm -hmm. that price discovery mechanism worked quite well. Exactly, exactly. With no authorized participant uh, deciding to withdraw because it could not hedge its exposure properly. What do you think is the, the regulatory landscape then for ETFs? Do you think there's more on the way? I know it's, it's obviously it's on IOSCO's uh, radar. Um, the Central Bank of Ireland had done their discussion paper and, and they kind of had left open whether they might look at a, a few elements around it. Um, do you think that, that we're going to see a rush to, to, to do more in terms of regulation of ETFs? No, I think IOSCO will certainly be dictating the, the pace of that. Um, so they are intended to consult, um, I think, later this year or early next, and then we'll see to what extent uh, they believe the existing principles uh, are to be amended. I, I guess they will, because they would need to make some space uh, and, uh, and give uh, the, the, the broader ecosystem uh, some recommendations as well. So, so far, as you know, the 2013 principles do not look at um, APs at all. Um, or or, or uh, the other liquidity providers. And so I think that this is going to be an occasion where they are going to beef the existing principles up with some regulations that uh, address the, the, the broader ETF ecosystem. Um, then following IOSCO's work, or whatever the outcome, uh, we're, we're likely to see something um, happen in Europe as well. Uh, there have been some rumors about around ESMA reviewing its 2012 um, guidelines on ETFs and other usage issues um, and, uh, and, and things of this kind. I don't know. I think, Shannon, that's quite a lot of technical chat. <laughs> what do you oh, think? I was quite happy to learn and listen and take notes. Uh, In terms I of... I enjoyed it, but I learned more than I could contribute. Well, I did want to ask you know. about ES, ESG, <laughs> uh, Federico, know. but... Um, um, is that so? ESG, environmental, social, governance—like a huge, a huge piece of the uh, the well, the regulatory agenda, but also increasingly driven from the investor side and investor yeah. demand. Um, and I can't really see that going anywhere other than other than up. Is that your experience as well? Is that your expectation that we're all? Yes, we're going yes. to be living in this world Absolutely. and the taxonomy will be kind of settled. And we'll I'd be actually able to add to that, Danny. I'd say if you look at the crisis we had 10 years ago and then you look at the situation that we're in now with COVID-19, um, we have uh, tested, refined, upgraded um, who we are and what we do 
so that we could rise to the challenge of this current COVID-19 situation. Um, we are going to improve all of our resources and what we do and who we are today so that we can meet the next big COVID-19. So if you were to consider the evolutionary growth curve, um, it can only go up. So as we develop ourselves and our business and our industry, we get to meet equal sized challenges um, or opportunities, depending on which way we look at it. So it can't go anywhere but up, if you would consider evolution to be an interesting timeline to apply here. I, I fully second that. Um, we're seeing growing demand for these products, um, ever more index-based as well. So, um, and I think that also, um, there's also some evidence that uh, ESG strategies have held up uh, pretty well uh, over the past few months. So, for investors that are looking uh, to diversify, invest in line with their principles, and really focus on the long-term impact of what they're investing in, as well as on their financial well-being, then there's no doubt about it. The, uh, the ESG <coughs> proposition um, is now going to obviously take different shapes and sizes depending on the structure, etc. Is is here to stay. Um, what, what's your uh, as you engage with members, Federico? What's your sense for their take on ESG? Is it is it a fad, or is it something that they that they believe in, or is it something that they will deliver because they think clients want it? Yeah, it's both. It's both. It's certainly demand driven. Uh, clients want it, and uh, more and more, you know, asset managers, being fiduciaries, um, want to offer that uh, that that product. What about you, Shannon? Are you an ESG believer, an ESG investor? I think anything that contributes to what is sustainable and profitable is the way. So, yeah. yes, yeah. Um, I think there has to be a balance struck um, with all of those uh, periphery interests. It's yeah. a long way to say yes, isn't it, Danny? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, this is uh, an opportunity uh, for the EU uh, to, I guess, to, to put up or shut up, uh, you know, in terms of how they respond to us as a, as a union supporting each other and each member state to get out the other side of this crisis and how much we actually drive on and deliver on ESG and non-market based, sorry, non-bank based financing, which funds and, and the asset management industry forms a huge part of. So um, you're going to see a lot of uh, assets ready for deployment and how they are deployed and where they come where they come from uh, is uh, is is I think is the the challenge and it will be interesting to see if the union can pull together and really prove itself uh, or or whether it goes the other way and becomes very fragmented and we start to see that it's it's not all that that a lot of people hoped it would be so there's there's the big picture thinking I think that is that is certainly true uh, if you look at uh all the discussions around uh, the bailout fund uh, of these days. That is really where Europe needs to come together as a, as a political entity, uh, more anxious solidarity, but more specifically in relation to ESG, as an industry, we welcome clarity. Uh, the action plan that was unveiled by the commission in 2018 has morphed into several, uh, um, several uh, competing uh, files, uh, which may, 
which are not necessarily consistent. Uh, the big challenge we have is getting sufficient quality information to do those assessments that are required for the portfolio manager to show vis-a-vis -vis the client, here's my product and this is how it is uh, environmentally or socially or from a governance perspective responsible. We still do not have um, sufficient data uh, across the many companies that we invest in um, to, to, to certify that we can meet what uh, the, uh, the politicians uh, and the policymakers here in Brussels would like. So the road there is going to be bumpy when all of this comes into force, but uh, you know, we'll gradually adapt uh, and, uh, and, and, and we'll certainly be able to to, to, to offer these products more and more uh, going forward. But uh, getting there is, is not easy because it really requires um, changes to some deep-seated thinking, uh, not to mention compliance and, and even relationships with, uh, with our own clients. It seems to me, Federico, that the ESG uh, world, ESG regime, is becoming heavier and heavier in the data field. Data is becoming more and more important to... Correct. how ESG will work and how you certify. And it seems to me like there's ripe pickings there for reg tech firms to, to arrive with solutions to help you pull that data together to certify and, and disclose and, and do what you need to do. Um, yes, so, so we're seeing it in, um, in, in a wave of acquisitions. You know, the uh, large uh, managers have started buying up uh, smaller companies that are you know, able to uh, sort through data they have access to numerous data fields. Uh, we also see this in the index uh, providers world uh, where you have the large you know, MSCIs uh, go out and really buy up uh, these players so that they can then implement their own um, ESG indices. Uh, so if passive is to grow, obviously passive means tracking an index, whether you're an index fund or an ETF, you are gonna be, you're gonna have to refer to an ESG. Now, um, there needs to be a, a level playing field in terms of ESG requirements that are put on asset managers and uh, those that are put on uh, index providers. And, and so far, it, it's, it's up to the managers to do the heavy lifting, uh, but the index providers, uh, from what I see, uh, will probably not come under the same uh, um, rules, especially in terms of uh, stringency. So this is this is a discussion that is now you know now taking place, and um, we we for the time being we see it really consolidating the uh, the, the the role of index providers, and this is maybe something that um, regulators can do something about. Um, if we look at um, how relatively less regulated they are compared to asset managers, um, and they, they they are really forming a a, a monopoly. Uh, also in terms of pricing power and, uh, and the conditions they are able to impose on asset managers um, looking to use their, uh, their indices. I feel another podcast topic coming on, Federico. Uh, uh, data and index Keep providers. Mind. Keep me in mind. <laughs> but I'm conscious that time is kind of against us. Uh, anything on your side, Shannon, before we wrap up? No, thoroughly enjoyed listening to you two um, have this conversation. I learned a lot. Federico, thank you for being here. You're welcome, Shannon. It was a pleasure. Hope to talk soon again. Yeah, yeah. let me echo that as well, Federico. Great to have you on board. Uh, very interesting to get the views, particularly outside of, uh, of our own perspective here in Ireland, uh, a bit of a broader European view on 
the challenges, but also what's happening on the regulatory side and, and, and how that COVID-19 is impacting the regulatory agenda and some of the market developments. And particularly interesting how uh, the, the market de- the markets and the, the stresses that have been put on products maybe prove how well the previous regulatory reforms have worked mm-hmm. and give ammunition to the likes of yourself, uh, evidence and data uh, going into future discussions about things like, and I do remember it well, uh, Federico, the, the NBN IG SIFI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and on that dark note, let's wrap it up. Thank you guys. Thanks very much for contributing. Uh, thank you podcast listeners for joining us in this episode of the Equest podcast and we'll certainly catch you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Aquas podcast. For information about our training and advisory programs or our academy, visit aquas.ie. For more resources on regs, funds, and governance, check out our YouTube channel, Daniel Lawler, R-U-R-Q.